You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning and welcome to Philemon chapter, well, I wasn't going to say chapter two, week two. There's only one chapter. Uh, Philemon week two. Good morning. Grab your Bibles. Turn to the little book of Philemon. As I said last week, um, if you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Um, Some folks are coming around and can get you a Bible if you'd like to follow along. Philemon, we are in week two of three, so we'll be looking at... uh, the last little part of Philemon uh, next week, um, Josh Waite, one of our elders, will be preaching next week on the last part of, of Philemon. Um, last week, we looked at the context. So here's kind of the outline of these three weeks. Last week, we looked at the context. The whole book is about reconciliation, forgiveness. So last week, we looked at the context for that, that Paul lays out as he writes this letter to say, here is the context, the place in which reconciliation will happen, theologically, I suppose. Two, today, the The call to reconciliation is what we're going to look at. And then next week is this commitment to live reconciled. The whole book, these 25 verses, are written for the purpose of unpacking gospel application. Specifically, applying the gospel relationally, interpersonally, in forgiveness and restored relationships. So, so just a brief recap, if you weren't with us last week or if you haven't read Philemon before, Philemon was a generous and wealthy man who was part of the church in Colossae. And Paul, the apostle, writes him a letter from prison urging him to extend forgiveness to a man named Onesimus, who we'll talk about more this morning. Onesimus was a servant or a slave in Philemon's house, and Onesimus had deserted Philemon, quite possibly even taken from Philemon in order to fund his escape. So there's this relational conflict now between Philemon and Onesimus. And Paul is taking the gospel what is true about Jesus reconciling us to God in himself. He's taking that gospel truth and he's applying it here, setting the stage for Philemon and Onesimus to actually be reconciled, to be restored in relationship. If I can say it this way, Philemon is kind of a case study in gospel application. Gospel truth about what Jesus Christ has done to forgive sinners Now, applied in real time in life, in this case, in relationships. And so this gospel reality has implications. As I said last Sunday, our big idea from the first part of Philemon was this, that for those who have been transformed in Christ, everything about us now conforms to that new identity in Jesus. If we have been saved by Christ and have been uh, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, if he's transferred us into this kingdom, then everything about us now changes. Everything. I said last week that Paul seems to emphasize identity in Christ kind of as a preemptive to the question, why? Why should I forgive this person who has wronged me? 
And that's kind of the question I want to tackle today is the why. Why forgive? Why forgive? And our big idea from our text today is that because God is gracious to forgive us, we are now compelled to forgive as an extension of God's grace. Let me say that again. Because God is gracious to forgive us, we are now compelled to forgive as an extension of that grace. So we're going to read our text again, as we did last week. We're only going to look at a small section, but we're going to read all 25 verses because there's not that many of them, so we might as well. So if you want to follow along, Philemon, starting in verse 1 all the way through verse 25 and read the whole thing. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Afi, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is for us, that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's holy word for us. Our big idea this morning, as I said, is that because God is gracious to forgive us, we are now compelled to forgive as an extension of God's grace. And so we're going to outline our time this way. We're mostly going to look at verses 8 through 16 and then a little bit of verse 17. 
I already apologized ahead of time to Josh that I'm stealing a verse from his section. Here's how we'll outline our time. That if we have been transformed, if we are being transformed by Jesus, which is a gospel reality for us, if that's, that's a promise for us, if this is true, then three things in this text. Forgiveness is fitting. If this is true of us, then forgiveness flows as an evidence of God's grace. And if this is true, if we are being transformed, then forgiveness is one of the main expressions of functional love. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is fitting. Forgiveness flows as an evidence of God's grace. And forgiveness is one of the main expressions of functional love. Let's look at the first point this morning. Verse 8, Paul writes this. Accordingly, which is just another way of Paul saying, therefore, so we have to know what he's talking about. Paul's like, because I have this, this gratitude to God for you, for your love for the saints, the depth of your faith, Philemon, has resulted in this generosity, this faithful service. It shows itself. You have a godly reputation, and I thank God for you. Because of this demonstration of you being transformed by Jesus, Philemon, therefore, I appeal to you. Paul says a little more than that. Keep reading. I could command you, Paul says, I'm an apostle after all. Jesus himself commissioned me, Paul writes in his, we read in Acts and Paul often makes that command. We talked about that last week. He said, I could command you, but I'm not going to. I could say, as an apostle, you must forgive Onesimus. You must. But Paul writes, but for the sake of love, which, by the way, is the same kind of love that Paul commends Philemon for earlier. He commends him for his love for the saints. It's that same kind of love Paul's saying here. But for the sake of love, for the sake of that godly, humble, loyal love that I've already seen in you, for, for the sake of love, I prefer to appeal to you. So that's why the word accordingly is, is helpful here. Philemon, because your identity in Christ, I'm appealing to you to act in accordance with your identity. Keep reading. Verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Paul's saying, here, here I am in prison. Onesimus, excuse me, Onesimus finds himself here, and during our time together, I have become his spiritual father. Paul isn't just implying. He's explicitly saying, Onesimus has come to faith in Christ. His identity is now changed. He is a different man than he was, because that's what happens when we are changed by Jesus. He was once useless to you. He ran away, and you were getting no benefit from him, but now, here's the contrast, he is indeed useful to you and to me, which actually, if you look up the name Onesimus, its connotation is related to usefulness. Paul's saying Onesimus is now to be included, Paul, or uh, Philemon, excuse me, Onesimus is now to be included in the list of all the fellow workers. 
all the other brothers and sisters who are faithfully serving to advance God's kingdom and his mission on the earth. Onesimus, who was once useless, is now actually to be counted among you. Fellow workers, we read this appeal from Paul to Philemon, but just think about it for just a moment, okay? Think about for just a moment the conversation that Paul must have had with Onesimus before he sent him back. Can you put yourself in his shoes for a moment? It probably sounded a whole lot the same to what he just told Philemon that we read. But can you imagine Paul talking to Onesimus like, Onesimus, you've been with me for a while now, but you need to go back and actually be reconciled to Philemon because you wronged him. He's your brother. You sinned against this man who is now your brother in Christ. And in light of who you now are, Onesimus, I'm sending you back. If you're going to walk consistently in accordance with your new identity, it means you have to walk the hard road back home, repent, so that the two of you brothers can be reconciled. Repentance and forgiveness of one another are the fitting steps to take as those who have been forgiven by Jesus. That's the case Paul's making here. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's writing to the church to remind them to not live like they used to live, but now live according to who they are. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, put off your old self and put on your new. Here's what he says in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. He says, therefore, putting away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil let the thief, if you were once a thief, no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Don't, you don't do that anymore, Paul says. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, Paul writes, for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And here's how Paul closes this section. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, here it is, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. Why? Because it was the kindness of God that actually led you to repentance. It was the tender-hearted Savior who gave himself for you when you were still his enemy. It was the one who secured your forgiveness through his own death on the cross, his own blood. Therefore, it is fitting as one who has been forgiven to now forgive. That's the case Paul is making here. And so the question that's been nagging at my heart this week in preparation is this, where is there still unforgiveness here in my own heart? Or is there unforgiveness that I'm holding back? My forgiveness of others is hindered, either out of anger or malice or something I can't let go of. Or maybe it's even possible that my forgiveness is hindered because I don't actually truly believe that Christ has forgiven me. 
that somehow I still have to pay for my own sins, therefore surely someone else has to pay for theirs. As one transformed by Jesus, forgiveness is a fitting and proper response. I think Paul makes that case pretty clear. Here's the second thing he says. Forgiveness flows. Here's what I mean. Forgiveness is evidence of transformation. It's not the only evidence, but it is an evidence. If I have been transformed and changed by Jesus, the old is gone, the new has come, then forgiveness is a fitting and proper response. And if I am able to forgive, to extend and offer forgiveness freely, that is evidence of the transforming work of Christ in my life. It has to be because I don't do that normally. Maybe you do. I don't. Look what Paul says in verse 13. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul's saying, look, I could have just kept him here and sent you a letter and said, hey, Onesimus, he's, he's a changed guy, and I'm just going to, he's very useful to me, so I'm just going to take it as a kindness from you that even though he kind of got away from you, I, I'm going to put him to work. Verse 14, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul could have just sent the letter. He said, I just want to let you know, your old servant Onesimus shared the gospel with him, and by the grace of God, he's changed. And I know you guys have some conflict, but, but like, I'll make it right, whatever he owes you, but, but you probably wouldn't mind if he just stayed with me, so we're just going to let that happen. Is that cool? He could presume that Philemon would be gracious and take Paul at his word and would be content to kind of just wipe his hands of the whole thing, right? You can almost assume that. And maybe you felt that way. Maybe in conflict, it kind of just kind of uh, handles itself, and you're like, well, that, that worked out. Great. I'm glad everything worked out. But, but the reality is, that's not actually reconciliation, if I can just be so bold. Just because it kind of like, oh, I guess things are handled. Cool. I don't think Paul's content with that. Sometimes things do come to a standstill. Sometimes people just kind of move on. And we might be tempted to say, well, I guess that's just how it is. And we're just going to be okay with it. But I don't think Paul's okay with that. His desire for Philemon and for Onesimus is that forgiveness would flow. Specifically for Philemon, that forgiveness would flow from him, not be extracted from him. You catch the difference? Not compelled like, I guess so but it would be genuine. Let me just put this into practical terms for just a second. Think about a relationship you have with your spouse or kids in the room, a relationship you have with a sibling. You don't have to be a kid in the room to have a relationship with a sibling, but just follow me, okay? And there's conflict between you. One of you sins against the other because, you know, that never happens. One of you sins against the other because that's actually what does happen when you live in close proximity. And let's say you're the one who sins. You're the offender here. You were harsh. You, you lashed out in anger. You took something that wasn't yours. You responded sinfully. 
And someone comes to the other person, the person who you wronged. Someone goes to them and says, hey, you know what? You really should forgive them. And that person's response is, gosh, I know you're right. I really don't want to, but fine. I forgive you. There's more chuckling just here than I thought there would be. Because you're all uncomfortably going like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> right? Fine. I forgive you. And if you're the offender there and you hear the fine, I forgive you, do you feel like restoration is taking place? Like, do you actually stand there and feel forgiven? Of course not. You're like, ooh, that almost feels worse. Because now you have something on me. Right? You feel like you're just going back to whatever it was. Like, that's not solved. However, what happens if that person who you've wronged becomes confident and convinced that forgiveness is the way and expresses a genuine desire to be made right with you and they say to your face, I forgive you. I forgive you. Well, that begins to mend the relationship, right? See, a willingness to extend grace through forgiveness to those who have sinned against you is evidence and evidence of God's work in your life. A willingness to extend grace and, and forgive those who have sinned against you is evidence of God's grace at work in your life. It's not the only evidence, but there's something there. So I want you to think about for a second a conflict, a broken relationship. Is there a reluctance or an eagerness to pursue reconciliation. I know I'm getting into like searching your own heart motives here, but are you reluctant? Like if I have to? Or are you eager? I want this right. I want this right. Or are you hoping that it, over time it just kind of smooths itself over? Colossians chapter 3, Paul is echoing similar to what we read in Ephesians. We're, we're to put off the old self and put on the new. Here's what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. He goes, in Christ Jesus, here in Christ, he says, there's no Greek and Jew, no circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, identifying markers of those who've been rescued, and transformed by Jesus, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, Paul writes, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Forgiveness flows from those who know that they have experienced the forgiveness and undeserved love of God in Christ Jesus, and then it, it spills out into fellowship and restored relationship. A life together marked by mutual love for one another and peace and unity that is shared by brothers and sisters as they live side by side a willingness, and I might even say it this way, an eagerness to forgive, to be reconciled, is an expression of functional love. It's love in action. 
And that's our third kind of idea today from this text. That forgiveness is love in action. Look at verse 15. Paul writes, For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. Now again, put yourself back in Philemon's shoes for just a minute. Paul says, perhaps this is why he was parted from you. And Philemon could say, uh, Paul, I know exactly why he was parted from me. He left. He took his ball and went home. That's why, he's, that's why we were parted. He's gone. He ran away, Paul. That's why we're parted. As a little theological aside, I think this is a, 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 a real-life example, real-life application of Paul's teaching from Romans 8. When Paul says in Romans 8 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called, in, called according to his purpose. When Paul says that in Romans chapter 8, this is a practical expression of that theology for Paul to say, actually, yes, he chose sinfully to run away. Not excusing Onesimus' sin in the least. But what I am saying is that perhaps God is at work even in his sinfulness, in order that you guys might not just be reconciled as employer and employee, as master and slave, but that you might be actually united as brothers and that God was at work. There's a greater purpose at work, even in this. That's how I read Paul's words here in verse 15. What we have here is a, is a real-life example of God taking even the sinful actions of one lost man, Onesimus, and in God's sovereign grace brings about not just a, a restored relationship, but a transformed relationship. Because God, God could bring about justice, and Onesimus could make restitution for all that he has taken from Philemon. And that would be just and good. But even greater, the gospel at work has made two men now brothers. And Paul is celebrating that. It's Christ who has made you no longer merely a master and a servant, but brothers. And Paul says there's a mutual benefit here. You don't only get back what was lost. You get a hired hand back. You get something more. You lost a servant, but what you got back is a brother. And what's remarkable here is that Philemon would have every right under Roman law to have Onesimus killed for desertion. Every right. That's what the law allowed. A runaway slave was punishable by death. And it's not that there aren't consequences for, for sin. Paul later talks about how he's willing to actually make financial restitution on behalf of Onesimus. But Paul's saying, more is happening here. This is no longer merely a matter of what is just because grace has entered the chat. It's now a matter of grace on display. It's love. It's functional love, practical love, grace on display. How do I know that you love me? Because when I sin against you and I repent, you forgive. And how do you know that I love you? 
Because when you sin against me and you repent, I forgive. It's a direct application of the gospel. Jesus himself says it. John 15. Jesus says this. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? Greater love has no one than this than someone laid down his life for his friends, Jesus says. If you are my friends, or you are my friends if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Notice, Jesus says, I, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Now don't, don't miss me here. Our, our King and Lord Jesus calls us friends. We bow our knee willingly to our great and sovereign King Jesus. We don't presume upon that, and yet He calls us friends. And we share, we share in His inheritance as brothers and sisters. The fruit that abides in the life of His people then of Jesus' life and inheritance on display in us is love, Jesus says in John 15. In this case, expressed in a willingness to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. It's grace in action. It is functional love on display. We are living out when we are willing and ready and in pursuit of others so that we might be reconciled when we do this, we are living out who we are in Christ. Paul opens his letter. This is your identity, right? This is who you are in Christ. Here in our passage today, Paul says this is what love looks like. Because God is gracious to forgive us, we extend God's grace as we forgive. And then in verse 17, Paul finally gets to his actual request. 16 verses Paul hasn't officially asked for anything, but he does here in verse 17. Look at verse 17. He says, receive me, receive him as you would receive me. Receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. Don't receive him as a former slave. Don't receive him as one who has wronged you. Don't receive him as one who has owed you something. Receive him as a fellow brother. Receive him as a partner in the Lord. What does it mean to receive someone? Jacob Abshire in his uh, commentary on Philemon, which is, I found very helpful and encouraging, he says this, we often say that we have forgiven another person, yet we fail to take the first and foremost step. We fail to receive them. Without this crucial step, we fail to truly forgive. For this reason, forgiveness is not merely a feeling deep down inside that we may have. It is a commitment of the mind and the will to another person. It is a commitment of grace that brings about the restoration of friendship and unity. And since it is lasting, he says, it requires work. Amen. 
That's Paul's appeal. Receive him as you would receive me. Now, can, can you imagine for a moment, put yourself back in the context, Philemon standing there in the doorway of his home, either reading these words or having these words read to him, and looking up and seeing Onesimus standing there, likely head down, just unsure of how is he going to respond to me. And instead of a call to local authorities to take him away, down to the local jail, I don't know how it was set up in Colossae, or just take justice into his own hands, take him out back, right? Instead, instead, Paul's request is Philemon, I want you to, instead of call the authorities, I want you to call together the other household servants. I want you to have them set up a guest room for Onesimus. I want you to to go into your cellar and pull out that reserve bottle you've been saving for a special occasion because just as if you would do that if I was with you, I want you to do that for him. Receive him as you would receive me. Pour the wine and kill the fattened calf because you've received a brother. Now, I feel like I have to say this because when you get into issues of forgiveness and restoration and restitution, it can get real sticky real quick. And we actually had this conversation a little bit in our community group this last week. What do you do? Well, we started it with a couple of people. Anyway, it doesn't matter. What do you do when the person who sinned against you doesn't actually repent? Like the scenario we have here is kind of like a, a best case, Right? We have a humble and repentant, transformed Onesimus coming willingly, humbly before Philemon to go, I want to be reconciled too. Will you forgive me, in essence? But what happens when that's not the case? Where the other party doesn't seem to want to truly reconcile. What do you do if that relationship is not just unhealthy, but it's, it's actually toxic or dangerous? Which is also the case, because we sin against each other in many ways. There are lots of scenarios, some you probably are replaying right now in your own mind or in your own situation that are not quite as, as clear as this one. And I, and I understand that. There are many instances when the path toward reconciliation falls apart, when one or both parties just cannot come to that place of humility and repentance. There are also situations where the life or the well-being of someone is at risk And so putting the the victim in the same room with the one who harmed them would not only be unwise, it would be unloving. I don't want you to hear me using forgiveness as some kind of cover for ignoring care and protection of the vulnerable, for those who have been wounded or abused. That is not what I'm saying. Now, forgiveness, I believe, should still be the aim for the one who has received God's grace, but it might not look exactly like the interaction we see here. But I think that, that most of our conflict, most of it, most of our relational strife comes as we sin against one another. And our pride or our idol of self is actually what gets in the way. And so what's needed for us in most scenarios, I think, is, is twofold. When we sin, when we're the the perpetrators, 
we need to repent. <laughs> That's just pretty clear, right? We need to repent and we need to pursue those we've sinned against. Like Onesimus, we need to be willing to go to the ones we've sinned against with humility and a willingness to make restitution and seek out reconciliation. Seek it out. That's one thing I think we need to do. The other thing is this, that when the opportunity to extend forgiveness is standing in front of us, we also need humility there and a fresh reminder of the gospel of grace. That God in His kindness and grace extends forgiveness to me because of Christ Jesus. And therefore, my posture as the one who has received God's grace should be a willingness to genuinely forgive as an extension of that grace. River City, I want to remind us, as those who have been transformed by Jesus. You are a new creation. And for you, as a new creation, forgiveness is fitting. It looks good on us. Two, forgiveness flows from us. It's an evidence that the Spirit is at work in our hearts, changing us. And three, forgiveness is one of the main proofs that you and I understand God's grace. It is, it's grace on display tangibly. Sometimes love, love one another, is, is tough to get your hands around. What, is, what does Jesus mean when he says that in John 15? Well, one of the ways he means it, one of the ways we can see it and taste it and feel it, is when we extend and receive forgiveness. We are reminded of God's grace to us in Christ, and because of God's grace to us, we are compelled to be a people who are ready and willing to forgive as an extension of God's grace. This is the call to reconciliation. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the reminder that we did not seek you out. We were your enemies and lost and dead in our sin, and we are reminded that Jesus in his grace and mercy pursued us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you enlarge in our view of your grace? That we would have no choice. That it would, it would have to push outside of the, the, the constraints we want to put it in. So we would have no choice, but as it spills out around us to offer it. Father, I pray for broken relationships that are still open wounds that are felt by probably lots of people in this room. Hurts that have not properly healed. They may have scabbed over, but they are not quite right. In your mercy, would you provide ways for forgiveness to be pursued and reconciliation to be chased? in those? Would you give humility where it's necessary? That you'd break pride where it's necessary. And that you'd ready us to receive afresh your grace. And that we would be overwhelmed that we couldn't help but let it spill over. 
Would you renew us in this reality, even as we take the bread and the cup, the tangible reminders of your love for us, Jesus? And where our hearts just swell with gratitude and worship for your grace and mercy to us. Would you do what we cannot do in our own hearts and in the hearts and minds of other people? Would you help us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.